at the end of the day, this is just disenfranchising our voters. And it's not just Democrats that are being disenfranchised, it's Republicans and independents and all of the voters in our county. Well, isn't that just like a Democrat fighting to enfranchise Republican voters? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Thank you for that. I got the feeling that something ain't right. You know what I am? I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am... From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. That voice you heard at the top talking about disenfranchising, risking disenfranchising Democrats and Republicans and independent voters was actually Elizabeth Tyndall, the chair of the Cochise County, Arizona Democratic Party. Cochise County is a very Republican uh, county in Arizona. And yet you heard the uh, Democratic Party chair there fighting for the enfranchisement of Republican voters in Cochise. What a concept. I will explain that concept and why she is doing that in a little bit. But we uh, do have some breaking news, breaking just minutes before airtime, Desi Doyen. So everything is just up in the air again. (laughs) As happens. Please play along at home. I think I told you on yesterday's show that we would be sort of transitioning in the coming days from election season to accountability season. Well, as noted, we still ain't done with election season, especially in Arizona and Georgia. And I've got some stories from there coming up shortly now. But some news literally breaking seconds before airtime today here. Oath Keepers founder and yes, former broadcast guest. Stuart Rhodes was convicted just moments before airtime of seditious conspiracy for a violent plot to overturn Democrat Joe Biden's presidential win, handing the Justice Department a major victory in its massive prosecution of the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol as AP writes, as I say, just minutes ago. 
A Washington, D.C. jury found Rhodes guilty, they say, of sedition after three days of deliberations in the nearly two-month-long trial that showcased the far-right extremist group's efforts to keep Republican Donald Trump in the White House at all costs. The rarely used Civil War-era charge of sedition uh, calls for up to 20 years behind bars. Rhodes himself did not go inside the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, but was accused of leading a plot that began shortly after the 2020 election to wage an armed rebellion to stop the transfer of presidential power. Through recordings and encrypted messages, jurors heard how Rhodes railed against his followers to fight to keep Trump in office, in other words, to help steal the election for Donald Trump. They learned how Rhodes warned of a possible, quote, bloody civil war and and heard him expressing regret that the Oath Keepers did not bring rifles to the Capitol on January 6. In an extraordinary move, Rhodes and two other defendants took the stand in their own defense, opening themselves up to intense questioning from prosecutors. Rhodes told jurors there was no plan to attack the Capitol and insisted that his followers who went inside the building went rogue. And this story is so hot off the presses as I go to air that AP actually wrote that uh, Stuart Rhodes' followers who went inside the building went rouge. <laughs> no time for the for the uh, for the typo fixer Cur- to get apparently in there. Apparently not. Yeah. On uh, trial alongside Rhodes were Kelly Meggs, the leader of the Florida chapter of the Oath Keepers, Kenneth Harrelson and another Florida Oath Keeper, uh, another Florida Oath Keeper, Thomas Caldwell, a retired Navy intelligence officer from Virginia, and Jessica Watkins, who led an Ohio militia group and As I said, this is all just breaking. NBC News is now reporting that Meggs, Kelly Meggs, was also found guilty as well of seditious conspiracy. The uh, three other members of the group, they report, uh, Harrelson, Watkins and Caldwell, were found not guilty on the seditious conspiracy charge, which is a very historically a very difficult one to charge. In addition to seditious conspiracy, all five of the defendants were charged with conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, which is a lot easier to get a conviction on, I suspect, obstruction of an official proceeding and aiding and abetting, and conspiracy to prevent an officer from discharging their duties. Watkins, Jessica Watkins, also faced a count of civil disorder and aiding and abetting because, as she admitted on the stand, she helped push against officers inside the Capitol. If I'm not mistaken, Jessica Watkins is also the one that has been credited Uh, if you will, for stealing uh, a laptop out of Nancy Pelosi's uh, office in the Capitol. Federal prosecutors allege that the five defendants conspired to oppose the peaceful transfer of power from Donald Trump to Joe Joe Biden. Uh, They, quote, they claimed to wrap themselves in the Constitution. They trampled it instead, said Assistant U.S. Attorney Jeffrey Nessler during uh, closing arguments. Quote, they claimed to be saving the republic, but they fractured it instead. Another Oath Keeper who cooperated with the government, according to NBC, Graydon Young, testified that he thought he was part of a Bastille-type moment 
referring to the storming of the fortress and political prison in Paris during the French Revolution in 1789. Young testified, quote, I guess I was acting like a traitor against my own government. Yes, you were, Graydon. The uh, Justice Department has charged about 900 people in connection with the Capitol attack and is now asking Congress for more resources for the investigation. Hundreds of additional cases are still in the works. For other Oath Keepers, notes uh, NBC charged in conjunction with Rhodes, Roberto Menuta, Joseph Hackett, David Morshell, and Ed Vallejo are set to go to trial in early December, though I suspect after uh, seeing what happened uh, to uh, these other folks who went before them, perhaps they'll change their mind about going to trial. Perhaps they'll decide it's a better idea to start cooperating with the government. Yeah, we shall one would see. think. We shall see. If they have good lawyers, they will. So that is just breaking and a very big deal for the Justice Department and uh, led by Attorney General Merrick Garland to get a seditious conspiracy verdict on the uh, leader of the Oath Keepers. Yeah, it's a huge deal. Huge I mean, deal. January 6th accountability is crucial to deter other future coup plotters from trying to go about criming again. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see how many people take notice of this and uh, change their behavior or not. I will tell you this, that in not entirely unrelated news today that I had planned to cover prior to that breaking news, not un uh, entirely unrelated, as you'll see, at least when it comes to the lengths that Republicans are willing to go to try and game elections, to try and steal elections, even though the corporate media doesn't describe it as trying to steal an election. Well, what the hell else were they trying to do with the U.S. Capitol on January 6th if it wasn't trying to steal the election for the guy who actually lost it? Now, I'm, I'm still hoping to get uh, to, to catch up on a number of things that we missed over the Thanksgiving Day break and even some things prior to the break that I had been hoping to cover by then, because all of this does seem to play together. And, and it does seem to uh, mesh with today's breaking news, even if I have to start here by going back by uh, oh, about 20 years or so to kick it off. So remember back in the year 2000, if you're old enough, as some of us are. When the Republican presidential candidate at the time, George W. Bush, you might remember him, and uh, the GOP itself, they made a huge deal in that election in 2000, about $55,000 that the DNC had raised when Al Gore had attended a fundraiser slash community outreach event at a Buddhist temple out here in Southern California. You remember this? Is this ringing a bell? Oh, yes. It seems forever ago now. Uh, the it's Tibetan monks it correct. was the key word I think yeah. that everybody would remember. The uh, the event actually raised more than $150,000 for the Democrats, but about 55000 of that was apparently illegal because it had come from, yes, Tibetan monks and nuns that were repaid for their contributions by the temple itself, a straw man uh, donation, as they call it. It's unclear that Al Gore actually knew anything about those unlawful straw man donations back in 1996, so four years before the 2000 election. But George W. Bush and the Republicans at the time made a huge deal about it in the 2000 campaign, suggesting that Al Gore was somehow 
controlled by China or something because of the the people behind the fundraiser it was eventually discovered had also allegedly laundered foreign money to the DNC way back in 1993 a whole lot of smoke here not a whole lot of evidence that either Clinton or Gore actually knew anything illegal had occurred in any of this due, if nothing else, to murky campaign finance laws at the time. But, of course, the GOP made it out to mean that Al Gore in 2000 was secretly a puppet of communist China. (laughs) Because, you know, of course they did. And, hey, politics ain't beanbag, as they say. Uh, So Republicans pretended to be absolutely furious about all of this. And that's one of the things that actually helped George W. Bush to do as well as he did that year, even though by all available evidence, I should note, George W. Bush almost certainly lost that election in reality to Al Gore back in 2000. But thanks to Republican friends on the U.S. Supreme Court... Uh, who George W. Bush's father helped uh, helped appoint, thanks to George W. Bush's brother, who happened to be the governor of Florida at the time. Well, he was eventually awarded the presidency anyway. And as it turns out, there was no seditious conspiracy to run an insurrection at the Capitol to stop the peaceful transfer of power, though arguably there was much more reason to do so back then than there was 20 years later in 2021. In any event, all of that uh, story, uh, that was then, when a questionable and or unlawful $55,000 donation that a candidate was almost certainly unaware of four years earlier Uh, became a huge issue in a presidential election. But that was then. Now is now when such a quote unquote scandal seems really, in retrospect, incredibly quaint, doesn't it? (laughs) Yes. While the Republican Party has moved far beyond giving a damn about such things, apparently, given all of the, we'll call it, questionable campaign donations that they and their candidates have received from, let's call them questionable sources, including foreign ones over the years. Don't even get me started on the $2 billion that the Saudi Arabian government just handed to the son-in-law of the Republican Party's leading presidential candidate for 2024. But the uh, GOP used to pretend to care about such things, Eh, though I say that was then, now is now. Earlier this month, it was reported that highly placed Russian sources are now simply just bragging about helping out the Republican Party in American elections. Even after all these years, After the Trump and the GOP pretended that there was no cooperation at all. What cooperation between the Trump campaign and various Russian sources back when he first ran for office in 2015 and 2016? Despite all of the evidence to the contrary, that there was, in fact, cooperation, including evidence largely ignored by Republicans and the corporate media itself, and I should add many folks on the left, that was detailed in Robert Mueller's special counsel reports about that, yes, collusion. As AP reported in the first week of November this year, yes, we're finally up to this year, Kremlin-connected entrepreneur, uh, pardon my uh, Russian here, (laughs) Yevgeny uh, Prigozhin, admitted 
This was just a couple of weeks ago, admitted on uh, Monday a couple of weeks ago that he had, in fact, interfered in U.S. elections and said he would continue to do so, confirming for the first time the accusations that had previously been rejected by uh, Prigozhin for many, many years. Prigozhin boasted in remarks posted on social media at the beginning of this month, quote, gentlemen. We have interfered, are interfering, and will interfere, he said, carefully, precisely, surgically, and in our own way as we know how to do, he said. The statement from the press service of his catering company that earned him the nickname Putin's chef came on the eve of the U.S. midterm elections this year. It was the second major admission in recent months by the 61-year-old businessman who has ties to President, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin. Prigozhin has previously sought to keep his activities under the radar. Now he appears increasingly interested in gaining political clout by bragging about them. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre said in response to Prigozhin's comments uh, that they, quote, do not tell us anything new or surprising. She said it's well known and well documented in the public domain that entities associated with Prigozhin have sought to influence elections around the world, including the United States. The U.S. has worked to expose and counter Russia's malign influence efforts as we discover them, she, she said, noting that Prigozhin had been sanctioned by the U.S., the U.K., and the uh, European Union. Quote, part of Russia's efforts include promoting narratives aimed at undermining democracy and sowing division and discord. It's not surprising that Russia would be highlighting their attempted efforts and fabricating a story about their successes on the eve of an election, she noted. In 2018, Prigozhin and a dozen other Russian nationals and three Russian companies were all charged in the U.S. with operating a covert social media campaign aimed at fomenting discord and dividing the American public. Mission accomplished ahead of the 2016 presidential election that was eventually won by Donald Trump. They were indicted as part of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russia's election interference. Again, just a reminder for, for those both on the right and on the left who think uh, who, who love to repeat, oh, Russia, 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 Russia gate. Nothing happened at all. You're all imagining it. It was not imagined. All of which then makes that, frankly, uh, that, you know, that fifty five thousand dollar donation to Democrats back in 1996. Actually, a lawful donation, but from an unlawful straw man source at the time. It makes that unbelievably quaint in retrospect compared to what we are dealing with now. Uh, until now, Prigozhin had denied Russian involvement in election interference, but not anymore. Now, for some reason, he is bragging about it. And in a related story... Also this month that we did not have time to cover just before uh, taking the time off for Thanksgiving, a Republican political strategist was convicted of illegally helping a Russian businessman to contribute to Donald Trump's campaign that year back in 2016. 
while earning tens of thousands of dollars for both himself and the RNC at the time. But golly, don't tell the RNC, you know, of the year 2000 about it. They would they'd be furious to hear what happened in 2016. Longtime GOP operative Jess Benton or Jesse Benton, I should say, was pardoned by Donald Trump back in 2020 for a different campaign finance crime entirely. That was just months before Benton was then indicted yet again, this time on six counts related to facilitating an illegal foreign campaign donation. Yes, an illegal foreign campaign donation, the thing that Republicans used to pretend to be against. He was found guilty Uh, the week before uh, last on all six counts in the matter. So add him to the list of Republican Trump pardoned criminals who were then later found to be guilty of additional crimes. And I suspect there are more ahead. So much criming, so little time to catch them all. Remember when uh, the GOP used to pretend to be furious that Bill Clinton pardoned one guy who was a Democratic donor? (laughs) That was adorable. For the record, uh, before he was uh, dragged kicking and screaming and crying out of uh, the White House, Donald Trump actually pardoned hundreds of them. I'm sure the GOP, when they take over the House in January, they will get right on those hearings about all of that. No doubt. Right? Anyway, the evidence at uh, Benton's latest trial that he was found where he was found guilty showed among other things that he bought a $25,000 ticket to a September 2016 RNC event on behalf of a guy named Roman Vasilenko, a Russian naval officer who turned into a multi-level marketer. Now, don't make too much of the fact that all of these folks involved in these various stories all just happen to be Russians. That's that that part is just totally <laughs> coincidental. So I'm no collusion. Russia, Russia, Russia. The uh, $25,000 donation to the RNC by that Russian national got Vasilenko a picture with Donald Trump and an entrance to a so-called business roundtable with the then future president. During his No Collusion 2016 campaign for president, Vasilenko connected with Benton through a guy by the name of Doug Weed. His name may sound familiar to broadcast listeners. I'll get to why in a moment, but he's an evangelical ally of the Bush family, and he's a Republican congressional historian who was also involved in multi-level marketing they're all also involved in, you know, it's Russia and multi-level marketing and Republicans. Perfect together. Anyway, Vasilenko, in fact, sent $100,000 to Benton, who was working for a pro-Trump super PAC at the time, supposedly for consulting services, not for collusion, but so that this Russian businessman could receive some consulting from the longtime GOP operative, who just happened to be working for a Trump super PAC at the time. Benton subsequently donated $25,000 to the RNC by credit card to cover the ticket. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of uh, convoluted, but that's what these guys do. Benton said in an email to his RNC contact that Vasilenko was, quote, a friend 
In fact, uh, a friend who, you know, he was uh, covering for this ticket for. In fact, according to the testimony in his trial, Benton and Vasilenko had never actually met each other at the time. (laughs) Of course they haven't. Benton argued that he followed the advice about these payments of his previous counsel, a guy by the name of David Warrington, who also represented Donald Trump. Go figure. Benton also claimed he earned the $100,000 acting as a tour guide in Washington for Vasilenko, who hasn't earned $100,000 as a tour guide. As one does. Now, Doug Weed, uh, he died at the age of 75 last December after he was indicted along with Benton in this scheme. He uh, had discussed with Vasilenko the possibility of a photograph with Donald Trump that was eventually taken. But he died. The late Doug Weed, in his capacity as a congressional, actually a Republican National Committee convention uh, historian and expert, he used to appear, yes, right here on the broadcast on occasion. So that means between him and Stuart Rhodes, the head of the Oath Keepers, who has now been found guilty of seditious conspiracy for his part in the January 6th insurrection, well, that means we've had not one, but two different Republicans on this program who were later criminally indicted. And convicted. And convicted, at least in the case of Rhodes. So if you're wondering, you know, hey, Brad, (laughs) why don't you have more Republicans on this program? Why don't you get a different point of view every now and again? Well, perhaps it's because most of these Republicans at this point are either A, crazy, insane liars, or B, uh, criminals, or C, both. Uh, So (laughs) what can I tell you? And I don't, I'm not crazy about giving uh, airtime to, you know, crazy criminal liars. liars. Yeah. Uh, Benton's defense uh, in, in, this, uh, in his latest trial that he was found, where he was found guilty. Gosh, I'm sorry we didn't have him as a guest. Anyway, he attempted to downplay this $25,000. He says that you know, passed from the Russian national to the RNC. It was, it was nothing, quote, nothing, he said, in an election that cost billions of dollars. Why should it matter? Quote, this is not some nefarious backroom scheme to funnel millions of dollars from Russia, Benton insisted. Okay. Prosecutors, meanwhile, argued that every dollar counted in this race where Hillary Clinton, the Democrat at the time, was far ahead in fundraising and the Benton knew that Donald Trump needed money. Like the Oath Keeper leader Stuart Rhodes, Benton began his career. They both did. Benton and Rhodes began their careers on the GOP's libertarian fringe as an aide to former Texas Republican Congressman Ron Paul. Why did Ron Paul have all of these people on his staff that eventually turned rouge? Well, (laughs) I guess you have to ask Ron Paul. Or you could ask Ron Paul's son. It turns out that Benton is... um, Married to Ron Paul's granddaughter, <laughs> he gained mainstream credibility thereafter by helping Ron Paul's son, Rand Paul, win his U.S. Senate seat back in 2010. So, yeah, Rand Paul was working with has been working with criminals for years. He was also hired 
uh, Benton was by Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell to help in his 2014 re-election campaign, but he resigned before the election amid, amid the investigation into whether an Iowa state senator was bribed by Benton to support Ron Paul in the 2012 presidential race. That, after that state senator in Iowa, the one in question, had initially announced his support for then-GOP presidential candidate Michelle Bachman. Remember her? And then on the eve of the Iowa caucuses, this uh, official in Iowa actually stunned everyone by declaring he had changed his mind. He doesn't want Michelle Bachman after all. He wants Ron Paul. Now we know that he was, in fact, paid off to do that by... Well, Ron Paul's grandson-in-law? Yes, Jesse Benton. So it was only later that we learned about that, that he had helped pay this guy off. Benton was convicted in May of 2016 of conspiracy and involvement in filing false campaign finance reports not long before the new scheme with the Russian guy for which he has just been found guilty began. Trump pardoned him for that first set of crimes just before he was then charged for the next set of crimes. Got it? After the new verdict, Benton's lawyer said he maintained, quote, maintained his innocence. He plans to appeal. But other than that, Republicans are totally furious about the idea of foreign money in campaigns. And they have never had anything to do with colluding with Russians in any way, shape or form. That would be outrageous. OK, got that out of my system. Speaking of elections and lies, let's take a quick break here and we will get back to the yes, still ongoing 2022 midterm elections. They ain't over yet with news out of both Arizona and Georgia once again today and maybe more if time allows. And yes, our first Green News report since returning from the holidays. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. You're listening to The Bradcast. We are 100% listener-supported, thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate. Arizona, take off your rainbow shades. Arizona, have a look at the world Welcome back to The Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I love that song. Uh, you know, if Democratic... Arizona Secretary of State and apparent governor-elect Katie Hobbs is trying to cheat in favor of Democrats. She's doing a really, really lousy job of it. <laughs> on our previous broadcast, we went into some detail on the claims that are now being made by Republicans in Maricopa County, that's Phoenix, uh, Arizona, but really across the entire state. The, the complaints, uh, the claims about an optical, the optical scan tabulator systems that failed in several, a bunch of voting centers, uh, precincts during the November 8 midterms in Maricopa County. It didn't prevent anybody from actually voting on hand-marked paper ballots that day. Thankfully, that's what they use across Arizona. But the ballots, in some cases, instead of being scanned by the tabulators, they were they had to be placed into a locked box because the tabulators were having trouble reading these particular ballots. 
for reasons that still uh, remain a little bit unclear. But, you know, uh, instead, they placed their ballots into a lockbox and then they were the ballots were later taken back and counted at headquarters, county headquarters. But Republicans, because they appear to have lost a number of close statewide races in Arizona, including for governor and attorney general, They are pretending that voters were somehow disenfranchised by all of this and they they didn't have their votes counted as cast. But that's appears to be completely untrue. What? It's nonsense? You're kidding me. (laughs) And as I explained on our previous show, scanning and tabulating ballots at county headquarters instead of at the precinct immediately after votes are cast. Well, that's not actually unusual in the least. It's done for every ballot in many counties across the country where there is no scanning at the precinct, including, by the way, eight different counties in Arizona alone do it that way. So there's nothing particularly unusual about it. Maricopa County, which is run by Republicans in a report uh, responding to these claims on Sunday, explained nobody was prevented from voting. Eighty five percent of vote centers at the same time never had lines that were longer than 45 minutes. Most vote centers with long lines had other vote centers nearby with shorter waits that folks could go to. The response blamed from the county, from Maricopa County, blamed prominent Republicans for what happened, including state party chair Kelly Ward for sowing confusion by telling supporters on Twitter that they shouldn't place their ballots into these secure boxes that would be tabulated by machines back at county headquarters. Some Republicans actually listened to that advice, walked out. Almost all of them went and voted elsewhere. The county said that just under 17,000 Election Day ballots had to be placed into these secure boxes and that every single one of them was actually counted. But because some Arizona Republicans cannot believe that they continue to lose more and more statewide elections, some of them are pretending that elections are being stolen from them by the Democratic Secretary of State in Arizona, who is soon to be the state's governor after she defeated the uh, Trump disciple Carrie Lake and apparently by the Republican Board of Supervisors and Republican County Elections Recorder in Maricopa, uh, who all said that, in fact, yes, Carrie Lake lost to Katie Hobbs, the governor, the Democratic Arizona Democratic Secretary of State, and now the governor-elect. So this uh, Monday, uh, this week, was the deadline for counties around the state of Arizona to certify their canvassed results prior to next Monday, when that Democratic Secretary of State, Katie Hobbs, soon to be replaced by another Democrat, Adrian Fontes, who defeated a Trump-backed election liar on uh, Election Day when she must, by law, join with the state's outgoing Republican governor, Doug Ducey, to certify all of the state's elections. So the counties did it this past Monday. The state will then certify those results next Monday. But on Monday of this week, there was a holdout county. As AP reports, Republican officials in the rural Arizona county of Cochise refused on Monday to certify the 2022 elections, despite 
no evidence of anything wrong with the count. The refusal to certify by Cochise County in southeastern Arizona comes amid pressure from prominent Republicans to reject results, showing the Democrats won top races in the state. Secretary of State Hobbs, a Democrat who narrowly won the race for governor, quickly filed suit to ask a judge to order county officials to canvass the election as they were required. She said it's an obligation under Arizona law. The two Republican Cochise County supervisors, however, delayed canvassing the vote or certifying the vote by tabling that decision until Friday of this week when they want to hear once more about concerns over the certification of ballot tabulators like the ones that failed in Maricopa, though election officials have repeatedly said the equipment is properly approved. The one Democrat on the Board of Supervisors in Cochise County voted, in fact, to certify the election, but was outvoted by the two Republicans. While the vote was tabled until Friday, attendance, attendees at the meeting, at the hearing on Monday in Cochise, were sort of confused by all of this. Because as of this morning, there is no meeting of the supervisors actually scheduled for Friday. The next meeting is not until next Tuesday in Cochise County. So this is all kind of strange. State Elections Director Corey Lorick wrote in a letter last week that the Secretary of State is required by law to approve the statewide canvas by next week and will have to exclude Cochise County's votes if they are not received in time. Cochise is a very Republican-leaning county. Without their votes, that would threaten to flip the winner in at least two close races from a Republican to a Democrat. So what are the Republicans doing here? Not entirely clear, not entirely clear that even they know what they're doing, frankly. Failing to certify would undermine the will of the county's voters, quote, and so further confusion and doubt about the integrity of Arizona's election system. Lawyers for Katie Hobbs wrote, quote, the board of supervisors had all of the information they needed in Cochise to certify this election, and they failed to uphold their responsibility for Cochise voters. That according to a spokesman, spokeswoman, I should say, for Hobbs. Arizona law requires county officials to approve the canvas. Lawyers in several counties warned Republican supervisors that they could face criminal charges if they failed to carry out that obligation. In Cochise, GOP supervisors abandoned their original plans to hand count all of the ballots because a court said that that would be illegal. But they demanded last week that the secretary of state prove that vote counting machines were legally certified before they would approve the election results. Now, this sort of comes from a, uh, a, th a theory, a claim, a conspiracy theory that came up last year that one of the two companies that are certified by the U.S. Elections Assistance Commission to basically test these machines, these voting systems, that one of those two companies themselves was not certified for this job. And this appears to have come from uh, the fact that the company, or I should say the EAC, the U.S. Elections Assistance Commission, had an outdated certification 
uh, uh, certificate for them so on their really, website. Really minor, minor technical issue. It sounds like. Well, it's technical in that yeah they hadn't updated the certification on the website on on the website, and that these companies are always certified. They don't. Uh, they never lose their certification until they are specifically. Uh, you know, told by the EAC that they have lost their certification. So they, they remain certified. It doesn't uh, time out after a certain, it doesn't expire after right. a certain time. So it's kind and, of an excuse, this yet, sounds like. Well, they're claiming that this means they were uncertified at the time that they certified the machines that were then used in Cochise County. Uh, still, the two Republicans on the board are pretending, despite the fact that there was no actual problems with voting in Cochise, that there must be a problem here because of all this. It's unclear what happens, of course, if they ultimately refuse to certify the county canvas. So Secretary of State Hobbs quickly went to court to prevent the county's voters from being disenfranchised. And that led the Arizona Republic columnist E.J. Montini today to declare, quote, Katie Hobbs really stinks at cheating. He writes, <laughs> either the conspiracy theorists and election deniers are totally wrong about the governor-elect and current Secretary of State Katie Hobbs, or she is really, really bad at cheating. I mean, come on, he writes. This is a gift, a freebie, a waist-high fastball served down the middle of the plate, just asking for Hobbs to knock it out of the park. In a two-to-one vote, Montini notes, with the lone Democrat going against the majority Republicans, the kooky supervisors of Cochise County are holding out on certifying the county's election results and instead of saying, quote, thank you, and heaping praise on the blundering blockheads on the board, Hobbs's office decided to sue them for not following state law. If Hobbs and her office chose not to follow the law and essentially look the other way, it would be a bonanza for Democrats, Montini notes. Cochise County is heavily Republican. According to records on the county's website, Republican Juan Siscomani received nearly 14,000 more votes than Democrat Kirsten Engel in the race for Arizona's 6th U.S. Congressional House District seat. A house they would lose the seat. And, and if you haven't heard, it's kind of a close, uh, close contest for who's going to have control of the U.S. House. Well, this would flip one race from Republican to Democratic. Likewise, Montini notes, Republican Tom Horn received 9,000 more votes than Democrat Kathy Hoffman in the contest for the statewide superintendent of public instruction. If the supervisors were to refuse to certify the election results and, as the law provides, quote, disenfranchise all of the voters in Cochise County, Democrats would have enough votes from the other 14 counties to win both of those races. And I would add to that, Democrat Chris Mays currently leads Republican Abe Hamaday by just 510 votes out of more than two and a half million cast statewide in the Arizona state attorney general's race. Chris Mays, uh, she's up by just over 500 points, and there is scheduled to be an automatic recount there, as there should be because it is so close. But without Cochise's votes for Hamaday, I suspect Mays easily wins the attorney general's race 
and could probably make the final margin too large to allow for a recount in the state. Back to Montini, who writes, all Katie Hobbs's office had to do to make it happen is turn a blind eye. Don't file a lawsuit. Don't do anything. Let the goofball Republican majority on the Cochise County Board, who ironically squawk about non-existent voting irregularities, negate the votes of tens of thousands of their residents, the majority of them from their own party. There would be no easier way to steal a couple of elections. If Hobbs, he writes, was part of some sinister scheme to defraud Arizona voters, as the GOP's losing loser gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake claims without any proof, well, she would welcome the board's refusal to carry the vote. She would be delivering at least one national and one statewide office to fellow Democrats. Instead, Katie Hobbs is doing the opposite. She's taking the side of the law and the citizens of Cochise County, even though they supported her opponent by more than 8,000 votes. So either Hobbs is a fair-minded, law-following straight shooter, or she really, really stinks at cheating, writes E.J. Montini in the Arizona Republic. And while Arizona is still slogging towards a final conclusion to their midterm elections, well, voters in Georgia are still voting in their midterm elections, and they are voting bigly, apparently. (laughs) On Sunday, early voters in Georgia's U.S. Senate runoff between incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock and Trump endorsed former football star and apparent pathological liar Herschel Walker. Well, voters broke turnout records on Sunday. Gabe Sterling, the top lieutenant for Georgia's Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, tweeted on Monday, another record has been set in this election cycle. The Sunday turnout of 86,937 voters was 130% higher than the previous Sunday record for early voting, set back in October of 2020. So voters defeated not only a midterm record for early voting, but the record for Sunday turnout period in a president, even in a presidential race as well. More Georgians voted this past Sunday than on any Sunday in 2018, in 2020, And in the 2022 midterm general elections, that according to uh, Sterling, even though not all counties, by the way, even held early voting over the weekend. It was left up to each county if they wanted to hold it on Sunday and Saturday and Sunday. And it was largely the Democratic leaning ones who did it. So make of that what you will as far as who may have benefited from all of that turnout, at least on Sunday and on Monday. With all counties now open for early voting, well, guess what? It happened again. More than a quarter million voters on Monday cast their ballots in Georgia's Senate runoff, breaking the state's all-time record for a single day of early voting. This is for a runoff, which usually gets very little turnout. Gabe Sterling, again from the Secretary of State's office, in a Twitter update wrote, quote, just wow, George voters facilitated through the hard work of county election and poll workers have shattered the old early vote turnout with 
more than 300,000 Georgians casting their votes on Monday alone. The previous record was around 233,000, so they pretty much blew the record away. Now, the old record was on the last day of early voting back in 2018 during those midterm elections, during the original race for governor between then Secretary of State Brian Kemp, the Republican, and Democrat Stacey Abrams for governor. Now, uh, Warnock, the senator, uh, uh, Senator Warnock and uh, the Republican challenger Herschel Walker have kicked their campaigns into overdrive, according to The Hill, as they vie for the Senate seat a second time. The Democrat had a one point lead in the general elections. But in fact, Republican Herschel Walker has not campaigned at all over the past week until just this past Monday. He held no public event since last Tuesday for reasons that are not completely clear. His absence is even more striking given the newly curtailed length of the runoffs chopped in half by Republicans in the state legislature, which could also explain the huge turnout numbers since voters don't have as long as they used to to receive ballots by mail, for example, and they may have chosen to vote early in person instead. Now, whether that means Democrats win this one, well, I would caution you to be careful about that. Remember those record-breaking numbers previously in 2018 and then again in 2022 in the uh, general election when Stacey Abrams lost both times to Brian Kemp even though two Democratic U.S. senators ended up winning their runoff contest back in 2020. So we'll see if that happens again in 2022. But I would caution you not to make too much about this, uh, you know, being a positive for Democrats or Republicans. I'm pointing it out because I think it's fantastic that voters are turning out to vote. It is a shame and a disgrace, however, that many of them are being forced yet again to wait for hours in line to vote because of Georgia's systems. Well, we will have more on what is going on on the ground in Georgia on our next thrilling broadcast. But hey, at least voters are turning out. Yes. Green News Report is next. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves by stopping by Bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Green News report coming up momentarily, but this just in. Yes, more breaking news. The Senate has passed a landmark bipartisan piece of legislation to mandate federal recognition for same-sex marriages across the country. That after U.S. Supreme Court Justice uh, Clarence Thomas, in the wake of uh, overturning Roe v. Wade, said, hey, now let's take a look at same-sex marriage and see if we can get rid of that. Yep. So good news in that regard. It doesn't mandate that same-sex marriage be performed in every state. But in order to get Republican buy-in on this, it means that same-sex marriages must be at least recognized in every state. The measure now goes to the House and then to 
well, hopefully Joe Biden for his signature. All right, let's get to it. Our latest Green News report. Today, we established the first ever dedicated fund for loss and damage. While we were out, rich nations finally agreed to pay climate damages to poor nations. A quarter of Americans are at risk of winter power blackouts. Plus, everybody that uses tap water in Houston is being told to boil your water. Entire city of Houston placed under boil water notice after power failure. All of that hot water and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Yusuf Shah, the 11-year-old British kid with an IQ higher than Einstein, has to explain the fascination with Rubik's Cubes. Look, I can solve it in three seconds. Nobody cares, genius. Go to your room and solve global warming. (laughs) Yes, please do. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, we step away for a few days and look what happens. A whole bunch of things all at once. (laughs) That we need you to cover on today's Green News Report. Indeed. While we were out, the big U.N. climate summit in Egypt, COP27, reached a breakthrough agreement after 30 years of deadlock. Rich countries finally agreed to create a fund to compensate developing countries for loss and damage caused by man-made global warming to recover from disasters and adapt to future impacts. It matters because developed nations got rich using fossil fuels, leaving poor countries who haven't benefited from those greenhouse gas emissions to grapple with costly disasters like worsening storms, droughts and heat waves and rising sea levels. The United States, the world's largest historical emitter, dropped its decades-long opposition after the new agreement ensured that rich nations won't be held legally liable for payments. Well... Good for us, I guess. COP27 Executive Secretary Simon Stile credited pressure by climate activists and non-governmental groups for the breakthrough. Without the voices of individuals, whether they're activists, researchers, scientists, youth, or indigenous peoples, we would not have gotten this far. Your voices have a direct impact on how we find our way forward at the multilateral level. So raising hell works if you can do it for 30 years. <laughs> yes. But thorny questions were postponed to next year, like the structure of the fund, where the money should go, how to hold countries accountable, and which countries should contribute, like, say, China, which is both a wealthy developing country and a top emitter. It was a mixed bag at COP27 after major oil producers thwarted attempts to strengthen emissions targets and blocked a provision calling for the phase-out of all fossil fuels. Here in the U.S., the Republican takeover of the House of Representatives in the 2022 election is likely to curtail U.S. climate action. GOP leaders have announced they're dismantling the House Climate Crisis Committee and have vowed to block the U.S. commitment to contribute to the Loss and Damage Fund and to chip away at President Biden's landmark climate law, the Inflation Reduction Act. Sure, why not? There's nothing wrong with the climate. Everything is fine. In Houston, officials on Monday issued a boil water notice Notice for 2.3 million residents and closed schools on Monday and Tuesday after a power outage at one of the city's water purification plants caused a drop in water pressure. The cause of the power failure is as yet unexplained as we go to air, but the consequences rippled across the city for millions of residents and businesses. 
Large parts of the U.S. are at major risk of power outages this winter, according to North America's Grid Reliability Watchdog. In their sobering assessment, the North American Electric Reliability Corporation warned that Texas, the Midwest, and New England are at high risk of outages in an extreme winter storm scenario that could curtail fossil fuel supply deliveries and knock unprepared power plants offline. The Biden administration just released another tranche of $13 billion in funds from the bipartisan infrastructure law to modernize the U.S. power grid for future resilience. Some good news while we were out. The world's largest solar farm began delivering power in India. The world's largest offshore wind farm went online off the coast of Norway. And the largest battery storage system in Europe went online. All are set to be superseded by bigger clean energy facilities already in the development pipeline in coming years. Nice. And finally, Buffalo, New York is just digging out from a historic multi-day blizzard that was juiced by global warming. Some Some areas received seven feet of snow. Mm. But despite the snow, Buffalo is promoting itself as a climate refuge. The city has launched a marketing campaign to attract new residents with data from online real estate site Trulia that highlights Buffalo's mild summers, climate-resilient infrastructure, and status as one of the top five safest U.S. cities against climate impacts. Until then, six feet of snow... Keep digging. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Oh, Buffalo gals, won't you come out tonight? Come out tonight. Come out tonight. Oh, <laughs> Buffalo gals, won't you come out tonight and dance by the light of the Thank you very much, Desi Doyne. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download them all for free anytime at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you kind enough to stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us remain on your public airwaves. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. That is it. Until we uh, will see you there. Until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.